0: Father God, we come before you this Lord's Day and we give you thanks for this day that you have created and given to us and set aside for your people to gather together to worship you and to share the love of Christ with one with the other. We ask your blessing upon all that we do today. We look forward to being nurtured and fed by your word as well as by the fellowship which your Holy Spirit gives to each of us to be shared one with the other. We thank you for this gift that you've given to us and for your constant hand of sustaining us uh, through all circumstances in life. Uh, we give you thanks and praise, and we ask your blessing upon our class this morning. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so we have late of late been uh, walking through class talking about why do we worship the way that we worship, Uh, because people who are unfamiliar with uh, uh, more historic reform liturgy sometimes don't always understand why we do all of the things that we do, and one of the aims of the class is to to help people better understand the reasoning behind uh, why we do some things uh, in our worship service so that we might be able to enter the presence of God with a greater degree of understanding, Uh, And Lord willing, um, receive greater edification um, by that so that there are no hurdles uh, in our way or uh, to impede our understanding of why we do certain things in our worship service. And it's always good to really think about them and to give reflection to them because our desire uh, is to honor the Lord in the best way that we possibly can um, and to maximize the benefit that we get from him. Um, and that's, that's one of the goals of this class. So we've, we've talked in this class quite a bit. Um, I, get, I laid a lot of ground rules in the first half of the class, at least, the first two-thirds of the class, I should say, uh, talking about the importance of systematic theology, or at least a rudimentary understanding of that, how th- what we do in the liturgy service reflects our understanding of who God is, who men are, and what our relationship between man and God is. Uh, everything that we do in the service is a reflection of that. And that's actually true in every church, uh, whether the, it's a conscious decision or not. Um, and you, you can come up. It's fine. We're casual this morning. We're casual. Uh, let me let me move my coffee out of the way. We don't want to accidentally uh, serve that for
1: communion. This That would be bad. Um, it wouldn't be biblical, yes. And we'll be...
0: We'll be talking about, Lord willing, uh, the Lord's Supper next week, and, uh, uh, you know, is it okay to have coffee for communion? Um, uh, And uh, obviously not, but what about grape juice versus wine? That's next week, so it's a little teaser. Like, we can discuss that and think about it. Um, We've been walking through lately the various steps of of the elements of liturgy. Uh, What are the elements of liturgy, and what is an element?
1: just by way of quick review. What's an element? Okay, so an element
0: is a basic core principle, something explicitly commanded or uh, very strongly implicitly derived, such as uh, giving of alms and offerings. Um, Something that's commanded in Scripture that we do on the Lord's Day. Uh, It's something that we... We need to do in order to be biblical uh what what are the different elements there's uh the preaching the the reading teaching preaching, and hearing of the word of god um that's that's one element
1: the singing a song Simpson spiritual songs prayer The, the ordinances, if you want to be confessional.
0: Sacraments is fine, but sometimes they, they, the, our confession changed the wording to ordinance to avoid um, certain similarities uh, with the Roman Catholic Church that we don't want because there's some ideas within sacramentalism that uh, are something we want to avoid.
1: But yeah, the Lord's Supper and baptism, only those two sacraments. Uh, that's part of prayer, but and then the the
0: fifth one, which is sometimes debatable, is the tithes and offerings, because we're not explicitly commanded to to take an offering every Lord's Day in Scripture, but there is biblical example for uh, uh, sharing what we have for the sake of benevolence. There are commands to um, uh, th- there are there are Implicit commands to provide financially for those who labor in ministry in the word uh, in a way to provide. And that's impractical to do unless we're gathering uh, a collection to to pay the salary of the pastor. And and we also have to maintain the building and things like that. Um, We also talked about the dialogical principle.
1: You guys, anyone remember what the dialogical principle was, is? Okay, it's based on the word dialogue. Yeah, and so we have the elements, and then we also have forms, which
0: is like, how do we perform the elements? There's a lot of questions uh, related to the elements that we have to answer. The scripture doesn't necessarily give us direction on. And that is the dialogical principle is one of the ways in which the question of forms is addressed when we're talking about the meta-narrative of what's the overall purpose of the liturgy. So all of the different elements are basically puzzle pieces. The meta-narrative is like, what's the picture that we want to put together when we put all the pieces together? What's the goal here? And one of the goals is to emphasize that w- the dialogical principle. Emphasize the idea that when we gather together to worship, we are engaging in a dialogue or a conversation with God. And so we start with a call to worship. God speaks to us, invites us to come into his presence to worship him. Then we go to an invocation where we, we invoke the promises of, that God has given to us in Scripture and ask his blessing uh, for all, all three persons of the Trinity to be involved in our worship service, um, which is us responding to him. And then we, we just go, we had this back and forth. We hear from the Lord, we respond to him this way. We hear from the Lord, we respond to him this way. And there's a dialogue that goes on. And historically, Reformed Christians have kind of framed that dialogue in the liturgy uh, in a way that is reflective of uh, the a covenantal conversation that we see take place in many different examples in Scripture where those who are in covenant with God— um, they follow certain patterns and forms of the way in which they speak to him and vice versa um, based upon some ancient covenantal um, uh, norms uh, of the way in which uh, greater kings and lesser kings would usually engage with, with one another politically. But we see it in Scripture, and so that we, uh, we've historically done that. So there's this dialogue that goes on as we're going through the liturgy and walking through it. Um, We've talked about the call to worship, we've talked about the invocation, um, and I started off by talking about what is preaching and what is the sermon. Um, This week I wanted to spend some time talking about the reading of Scripture, because the the reading, teaching, preaching, and hearing of the Word of God is an element, and so reading the Word of God is an important thing to do in uh, a liturgy service or in a, a worship service, um, and is that commanded in Scripture? <clears throat> is it commanded in Scripture for us to actually read the Scripture? It is. Where? Any it's First Timothy. You get a gold star. Just, you should have just stuck with your first answer and been more assertive. 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, this is Paul uh, um, giving some instructions to Timothy, a very young minister, giving him written instructions as to what he needs to focus on and remember and emphasize in his ministry. He says, until I come back to you, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Those are, the, those are three things in that passage that Paul emphasizes. These are important to do. And if Paul is, as an apostle, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is commanding Timothy to devote himself in his ministry in the church to the public reading of Scripture, we take that as a command that needs to be applied in all Christian churches. The reading of Scripture is essential and important. Um, I don't think that's a very controversial issue. Um, I think we can all accept that. But the word of God is important. It is what God uses to both uh, slay us through the law and to make us alive uh, through the, the gospel. Uh, it, it convicts us and it nourishes us. Um, it strengthens our faith. And the reading of the word of God is essential and important, which is why we do it on Sunday mornings. So we know that we ought to read scripture in our worship service as an element. But what about the questions of forms? How should we go about it? Which portions of Scripture ought to be read in the service and why? What length of a Scripture reading should we have in the worship service and why? Where in the service, where in our liturgy, should the Scripture reading or Scripture readings be placed given the, the meta narrative that we're aiming at and why? Who should do the scripture reading, and why? Should it only be the ministers? Should it be uh, officers? Should it be um, uh, any man in the church? Should it be a select number of men in the church, and why? This, these are questions that w- that have to be answered in order for us to actually observe this element. Um, should the congregation—here's an interesting question as well. Should the congregation listen to the reading of scripture, or should they sit there and— Follow along and read along in in their Bibles with it, have you ever thought about that question, and why it's an interesting question. Uh, I had a seminary professor who was really big on I- exhorting his congregation to not read their in their Bibles while scripture is being read uh, during this part portion of the liturgy um, and he had some really interesting um, thoughts as, as far as it. He has a doctorate in philosophy from Yale and he was really into this. This, uh, this philosophy called speech act theory. Has anyone ever heard of speech act theory? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, but part of that is, is is there's been studies done about how does our brain receive information. Um, a lot of it is somewhat psychological and they've done um, tests where they hook up electrodes to people's heads and they see, you know, which portions of your brain are active during different activities that you, you engage in. And when people are listening to something being read to them, it's a different portion of our brain that is primarily active when we listen than when we read. It's interesting. So there is something physiologically different going on when we are listening to something being uh, read to us than when we read and follow along. And he made, he made maybe too much hullabaloo over it, but it was interesting to me, and it, it made me think. And so I, I kind of experimented with it in my own uh, church when I would go. I, I, would, I would say, okay, I'm not going to follow along. I used to always follow along in my Bible when they did it. But i say, you know what, I'm just going to listen to it and say this is – Uh, a man of God, proclaiming God's word to me by reading it, and I want to receive it through my ears and not through my eyes and see if there's a a difference. There's not much of a difference in in my experience, but it's an interesting question to think through. I would just encourage you guys to do whatever you feel is the most edifying for you. But that is a question of forms. Uh, Should the congregation stand during the reading of Scripture or remain seated and why? What are your thoughts on that question? When scripture is being read, should, should the congregation
1: be asked to stand up or should we be seated? So, past, yes,
0: Pastor Daniel, the, the, he, there, there was a change made somewhere in the last year when he was here. Well, when we did the scripture reading during the service, we would sit during the scripture reading. But then when he would come up and read the passage of scripture he was going to preach on, he would have us stand up. Um, which was kind of interesting. Um, I've been in churches where we always stand when Scripture is being read to show our reverence uh, of receiving um, the the Word of God and to show reverence for the Word of God. Um, And that was
1: an intentional decision. Yeah. Well, I think some churches would ask you to stand
0: uh, for certain reasons. Other churches may ask you to stand for other reasons. Um, Some want you to sit for different reasons. Um, So, for example, um, in several churches I've served in in the past, we had uh, a reading of the law and then a reading of the gospel. And when we had the reading of the law, we asked the congregation to stand up because we wanted them to recognize this is law. This is God calling us to action. We are being called by God to obey this law. So we had them stand. And then later in the service, when we had a reading of the gospel, we said, we want you to sit down. Because the gospel is the proclamation of what Christ has already accomplished for us. You're not being asked to do anything. Christ already did it. We can rest when we hear the gospel. So that was an intentional, and we communicated to the congregation why we stand during the law and why we sit during the gospel. So that's a different reason. And, and different pastors or ministers may have different reasons for why they would prefer standing versus sitting. Um, and it's not as though Scripture commands either one, but a decision has to be made. Are we going to ask the congregation to stand up or are we going to ask the congregation to sit down? You have to choose one of the two. Uh, otherwise, everyone will kind of be like this during the, and that 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 that's hard on the the quads, you know. Um, it's, it's it's a question that we probably don't think about or give too much thought to, but it's a question that needs to be answered in one way or another. And my my contention is that any any question, even such a, a seemingly insignificant one as that, ought to be thought through. Uh, and addressed with pedagogical intent, we want to teach the congregation something important that we believe the congregation needs to understand, even in such a simple thing as sitting or standing. So, when we had them stand during the reading of the law, we wanted them to understand this is law. You need to do these things. You're required to do these things. You're obligated to do these things. And in sitting, so there was there was a pedagogical reason. There was a teaching reason. There was a, something
1: we wanted the congregation to understand. Um, Yes Mhm, yeah, and sometimes sometimes questions are formed such
0: as this that there is a primarily pragmatic reason. It's not necessarily we're teaching you something theologically important, but it's pragmatic. You know, it gets the blood flowing a little bit right before this the sermon starts too. You know, maybe it'll help our attention span a little here or there. You know, um, there's there's nothing wrong with that. So when we're an- answering questions of forms, there's there's a variety of different ways that that are legitimate uh, to answer uh, ways to answer those questions, and that's okay. Um, our desire is always to strive to answer them as biblically as we can, but there are some questions like this one where there is validity on both sides, um, and there's not necessarily a right and a, there's, there's there is not usually a right or a wrong way to answer these questions. Um, there could be some outlandish ways that, that people would try to answer the question that we would say that's wrong. You know, you wouldn't ask the congregation to stand up and turn their back. Uh, while we do the reading of Scripture. Maybe no one would even think of that. So there, there are ways to answer it that I would disagree with. But for the most part, the ways that most churches do it, there's not necessarily a right or a wrong. But it's good to reflect on it and to think about it. Okay? So those, those are some of the questions of, how, of forms. Um, so looking, looking at uh, just the first question I wanted to spend most of our time on, which portions of Scripture ought to be read in the service and why? Um, this particular question, uh, which belongs in the category of forms, um, is one that has been answered in a number of legitimate ways. So there's not necessarily a right or wrong way to answer this question either. Which portions of Scripture should we read in a worship service and why? Um, historically, uh, Reformed churches and even uh, all Christian churches, from my understanding, have answered this question um in five different ways so how would you answer this question let's see if we can let's see if we can come up with all five of them and maybe you've thought maybe you can think of one i didn't think of this week but which portions of scripture should
1: we read in the worship service and why okay
0: I know what you're saying, that that's that's an uh, underlying principle that may affect how we answer this question, but I don't think you're saying that every Sunday morning we should read all of Scripture, right? Okay. Otherwise, by the time we finished, it would be time to start the service next Sunday. The call to worship is Scripture, and some churches don't even have, like, an actual reading of Scripture uh, in their in their liturgy. Uh, which I, I I think is I, I I don't I don't prefer it, but there but there are uh, portions of scripture that are peppered all throughout the liturgy. The call to worship is usually scripture. When we do the declaration of pardon, that comes from scripture. The benediction, more often than not, is a quote of scripture. Um, There are quotations of Scripture here and there. We do a reading of the Scripture uh, of what we're going to have the sermon preached on as well. Um, But should we also have more reading of the Scripture? And we do in our church, and historically most Christian churches have a portion in their service where they do an actual reading of uh, Scripture that is not what's going to be preached on that Sunday. So how do you decide which, which passages of Scripture
1: to to do and why. What are different ways that different churches do this? Lectionary, yeah. So yeah, so some churches do So there's a there's a an annual schedule. Sometimes it's it's uh
0: like 2 years long. A bi, is that biannual or is that a semi-annual? The the 2 year long one of those I get him confused. But but every single week of the year there's a certain passage that every church in that denomination uh is going to read. Um and then as you go through that, you will uh have read you know, it, it's assigned every week, and there, there are reasons why those passages are assigned based on the calendar that they have. So, lectionary, then you have it decided for you, so the pastor doesn't have to fret over what, am I gonna, what are we going to do for the, the scripture reading this week. It's already in the book.
1: That's the one way that churches historically have done it. Consecutive reading. Yep. You know what? That would be number six. I did not think of that one, but there are. Right. There are, there are some uh, churches more on the Pentecostal spectrum. Uh,
0: the the church that I found that in was a, an apostolic church, which is not Pentecostal or charismatic at all. Uh, but they, and, and also I think, is it Mennonites sometimes? The Amish are, are into that too, where they, they want to make sure that the Holy Spirit is the one deciding what the message is going to be. So they don't prepare a sermon that week and they kind of flip open. Okay, we're going to hear a sermon on John 4 today. Because that's where the Holy Spirit directed my my thumbnail, you know. Um, but maybe they, and maybe some churches do that
1: uh, in their scripture reading as well, topically. So, uh, you, in my experience,
0: um, usually when they do a topic for the scripture reading, it's related to the sermon. So I've been in churches where uh, you're not, you're not going to read the chapter following the chapter you read last Sunday, but you're going to read a chapter or a portion of Scripture um, that may emphasize a certain point or the theme that the sermon is going to
1: be on to help prepare the congregation to receive the sermon. That's, that's a common one as well. Mm-hmm. So some churches that kind of switch to doing that, they're kind of like
0: flipping up to the lectionary type model uh, when they do that. And it's
1: okay to do that. Um, so the consecutive, I guess there's two
0: different ways to do the consecutive. Um, I'm going to throw, we all can remember the random one. We're not going to spend time talking about that uh but there's a consecutive uh a and then there's a consecutive b <laughs> so we do the consecutive a where we just do the next chapter after the one we did last week another another way to do it is like a, the a consecutive consecutive but it's uh they do an old testament and a new testament so it's the same thing but they have two different readings uh, throughout the service and they they, the, the the church I went to in seminary did this, where they uh, they had a, a a passage from the old and a passage from the new uh, for reasons. And then the fifth, I mentioned it this morning already. Why did I have why did why did I encourage people to stand in one reading and sit during the other? Law gospel. There you
1: go. Law and gospel reading. So that's kind of also topical,
0: sort of. I mean, they kind of bleed together. Um, but the categories just kind of help us to think through them. So the law and the gospel is another way that, that um, a lot of Reformed churches, especially Presbyterian and, and Continental Reformed churches, have, have practiced historically in their, in their liturgies, and that's, that's taken place uh, for a long time. Um, so there's not, there's not one of these that's right. There's not one of those that's wrong. Okay? But each one of these different um, ways to answer the question, how should we do the scripture reading, each one of them has particular strengths. And each one of them has particular weaknesses. Uh, and so if we were a, a, a rather large um, um, elder board um, and, and, and elder wives and daughters, uh, and we were having a discussion about which of these are we going to pick for our liturgy. It would be good to take the time to say what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses of each of them. Okay? And then after we do that and think through it, we would say which, which of these do we think is best suited for the meta narrative that we're aiming at? Which of them is best suited to best minister and feed our congregation? So I wanted to like, do a thinking exercise this morning. Um, and just ask, we're going to go through each of these and say, what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses of each of them? Okay, because these are questions that you guys probably haven't given a lot of thought to. So that, that's what we're going to spend some time doing this morning. What are the different strengths? So what, what would be the a, a strength um, of the lectionary reading? Why, is,
1: why would that be a good thing in certain settings? What, what's helpful about that? Their their lectionary gets them through the whole Bible in every two years. That's not like a
0: Bible reading plan. That's their lectionary. They they must be a, a lengthy, lengthy
1: reading. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, I mean, when we do a consecutive reading chapter by chapter... Uh, you would basically get through the whole Bible uh, in in your lifetime, not two years. That would be a long reading, but uh, so usually a lectionary, um, one of the one of the things that I would list as a weakness is that you don't ever end up reading the entire Bible because it's only select passages uh, that the people who wrote the lectionary they think are really important and
1: it's repeated again every year or every two years the same passages Mhm Mhm So that's a strength. When Christmas
0: is on people's mind, a few weeks leading up to Christmas in the lectionary, you're going to have different readings
1: uh, related to the incarnation of Christ. Yeah.
0: Uh, And so, yeah, that's that actually is a strength, Um, even though you're not going to get through the entire Bible. Um, And we don't want to discount that all of Scripture is God breathed um, and profitable for all kinds of uses. Uh, When when churches follow a lectionary reading, they want to they design their lectionary to emphasize some of the most crucial, fundamental, important Christian ideas in Scripture. All of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, but not all of Scripture is equally uh, as clear or to the point um, as other passages of Scripture, you know? Um, you don't flip to a random passage in, in Leviticus to share the gospel with somebody, you know? It's, it's more difficult to understand certain passages, you know? You, you talk about John 3.16, you talk about Romans, da, da 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 You talk about certain passages which are more clear, um, And a lectionary presents the the major, very fundamental, important doctrines that that particular church wants all of its people to really understand and inculcate in their faith. And they repeat those major, important things uh, every year or every two years because that helps uh, the congregation to imbibe those essential truths that they really need more. So it always is always, the lectionary readings are always emphasizing. Very clear and important fundamental doctrines of the faith. So that's a strength, especially in a culture uh, that prior to Gutenberg, where most people didn't own a Bible. Uh, if you take the, if you if you did like a the reading like we do in our church, one pass one one chapter every week. Uh, a lot of those passages, people would never hear the entire gospel until, or the entire Bible throughout their whole life. But is that more important for them to come to church every week for 50 years to finally hear the entire Bible read to them? Or is it more important to emphasize the crucial fundamental uh, aspects of, of the Christian faith? That's one of the reasons why lectionaries were way more popular uh, prior to the printing press. The people didn't have their Bibles. And so ministers had to decide, what's the most important passages of Scripture I want my people to know? We live in a different culture today where people have their own Bibles. Um, and it, 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 sometimes it changes how we would, we would address things like this.
1: But that's a strength. It, it emphasizes those important things. Uh, any, any weaknesses... Yeah. Yeah. And not and not all of it will be taught.
0: Not all of not all of scripture would be um read throughout the year as well. Yeah. So that's another uh uh weakness of that particular method. And I have a book. Oh, I already put it out here. There was an interesting thought. This is a book by Hughes Oliphant Old on worship reformed according to scripture. He had an interesting quote here that I wanted to just read. Um, uh, there, there is a resurgence of different churches to go back to electionary reading, to follow the calendar, um, because some people see that as a strength to, to do this. And he he's very critical of it. Um, And I thought it was interesting. He says that the recent effort to bring back the celebration of the old liturgical calendar has suspicious similarities to a revival of the nature religions, natural theology, a cyclical, uh, like a cycle, cyclical interpretation of life, and the resurgence of religion, the religions of fortune and fertility. One does penance during Advent, When winter sets in, and then one rejoices at Easter when the flowers reappear in the spring, it's all quite natural. But this fascination with the liturgical season sometimes seems not much more than a revival of Canaanitism. Uh, The primary emphasis of any reformed liturgical calendar should be the weekly observance of the Lord's day. And here's how he grounds that argument, which is interesting. He says, very significantly, the seven-day cycle of the biblical week is not related to any of the natural cycles that we see in nature. Uh, a lot of false religions are based upon uh, the, the stars and the seasons, and they, they, they kind of address their life based on those. But God gave us the, a seven-day week, and he built us and designed us to do a seven-day week uh, and so he's emphasizing that's, this is the timetable God gave us. This is the cycle God gave us, the week, weekly cycle. And he emphasized that. I don't know I would, that I would go as far as him. Um, but I think that what he's referring to is that there were some tendencies in uh, the medieval church to maybe overemphasize some of those things that he mentioned. But it's kind of interesting. Um, the reading of the Old Testament and the New Testament and I'm just going to put these together, the consecutive reading, the way that we do it, and or the reading of the Old
1: and New. What would be strengths and weaknesses of those? What would be a strength? You're going to get context
0: because you heard what you read last week and now you're reading it. Yeah, reading a, reading a passage of Scripture out of context can be a very dangerous thing. Uh, because it might seem like something is being emphasized in that passage where if you read it in the context, you're like, you know what? That's not actually what was going on there. So it's contextualizing it. Unless you missed the last Lord's Day, then you're out of luck, right? So that's good. We also are going to eventually, people who grew up in the church are eventually going to hear all of Scripture read to them in the church. Um, there's a pedagogical intent behind it, too, that it, we're emphasizing the importance to the congregation. It is, all of Scripture is important. Um, and we in our church are going to read all of Scripture, and we encourage you in your private uh, devotion to read all of Scripture as well. So there's a, there's a, teaching, a teaching moment
1: that, that's involved in that, too. What, what would be a weakness? <laughs> you might end up with a genealogy,
0: and it would be hard to pronounce the names uh, Yeah, there you go um another one is some passages of scripture are difficult to follow or understand, like when we start going through Leviticus in our consecutive reading uh that 's going to be it 's going to be a challenge on the congregation to be able to just follow it or even through numbers or through there 's different books where it's hard to uh, remain engaged unless you are, have that passage being explained to you uh, pretty thoroughly. Um, and it might inadvertently encourage people to, uh, to kind of check out during the scripture reading. That's kind of a negative, I suppose, you could think of it. It's, it's a question that pastors have to wrestle with. Is it worth reading through this or would it be better to wait until we teach a class on, on numbers or things like that? So there's there's strengths and there's weaknesses to them as well. Um, what would you say? Where are we at on time? Wow. Okay. What would you say about um, the topic? What's a, a benefit of the of the teaching topically, or reading a scripture having to do with the sermon? I, one of them is pretty obvious. It, it kind of uh, tills the soil for the sermon a little bit more. Um, I've 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 done this in the past where there's a somewhat lengthy portion of. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant that I wanted to refer to in my sermon, but I didn't want to take time in my sermon to go back and read these 30 verses, you know. So we'd, we'd, we did a scripture reading uh, earlier in the service on this, and I drew their attention to the fact that I'm going to be referencing this in my sermon, even though I was preaching from a New Testament text. So it, I've done that in the past. Sometimes that's helpful um,
1: to bring certain passages to mind to prepare the ways for the sermon. What would be a weakness? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it it could emphasize certain things, but leave
0: other things out. It restricts the reading of the whole counsel of God in the service and possibly overemphasizes the centrality of the sermon, if that's possible to do. Um, in other words, like... It might they might de-emphasize the meta-narrative picture of uh, what what is the actual liturgy doing. Um, Reformed theologians historically have looked at the liturgy itself as a sermon, and in the sermon as a sermon within a sermon. They're not necessarily the same; they're two different sermons. But the liturgy itself is teaching. That's why we have uh, a covenantal structure in it. That's why we have the gospel clearly presented in our liturgy itself. If we removed our sermon and just did the rest of the liturgy, you would have the gospel presented to you because we recognize our guilt before the Lord. We have a confession of sin. We hear proclamations of the gospel, uh, of an announcement of forgiveness, forgiveness and pardon. We're taught to read scripture. We're taught to pray to the Lord in different ways. There's different types of prayer. Uh, that we do with, you know, the um the invocation, the pastoral prayer, uh the prayer before the preaching of the word, the prayer of confession. These are different types of prayer where we're teaching the people how they should pray in their own life in these variety of different ways. Um, rather than simply praying before you have a meal and that's about the entirety of your prayer life. That's not what we want. We want to teach the, the church how they should be praying in their life throughout the sermon as well. Uh um What about the law gospel? You know what? We're going to pick up with that next week because we are running short. So, and I I didn't want to uh, shortchange this. The law and the gospel uh, as a reading, as a way of reading the scripture as well. We'll look at that as a strength and a weakness next time. What what our church is doing is the consecutive reading because we want to emphasize to the congregation that in their own private reading of scripture, that all of scripture uh, is God-breathed and profitable. And we should not ignore certain portions of it. We should not always turn just to our favorite passages. We shouldn't always just read uh, portions of Scripture which which happen to bolster up our own hobby horses, uh, which is a tendency, I think, that we all have in our own lives. Um, all of Scripture is important. Uh, and it's important and good for us to uh, to do that. Any thoughts or questions from this week? I know we didn't quite finish up, but... Any thoughts or questions? Did you guys realize that there's so much thought put into just how to decide these little portions of the liturgy? It's thoughtful. Uh, It's very intentional. Or it ought to be very intentional. Um, And there's a lot of pastoral care that needs to go into making these decisions. What is the best for our church? Um, And uh, we should be thankful for the elders that we have who've given a lot of thought to these things. um, And are doing what they believe is best for our church. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks and praise again for who you are and for giving us this gift of your word. Uh, We also thank you, Father, that we live in a day where we all own our own Bibles and can actually read your word uh, every day of the week if we desire. We know that there were many times in the past where that was not possible. There have been many churches in the past, Father, that didn't even own a Bible in the whole congregation. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of the ministers that you have sent to us to proclaim your word to us, to read your word to us, to teach it, to preach it. And we thank you especially for the gift of your spirit, Father, who plants the seed of your word into our hearts and causes it to grow uh, and to flourish. Uh, We thank you
1: for these things, these wonderful gifts you've given to us. uh, In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.